This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. This is episode 045, number 45 of the Flux Capacitor. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. A special podcast this time. This is a recording of a webinar held immediately following the Canadian federal election on September 20th, providing our hot takes on what the election results mean for Canadian electricity. I was joined by Michael Powell, CEA's VP of Government Relations, and Julia Muggeridge, VP of Communications and Marketing, for a webinar we put together to provide the sector with perspectives on the election results. Michael provides a general overview of the campaign, the results and key campaign commitments, followed by a three-way conversation on implications and next steps. We also take questions sent in by the live webinar audience on GHG reduction targets, net zero electricity grids, and electric vehicle mandates. Here is my conversation with Julia and Michael, recorded two days after the September 2021 Canadian federal election. Well, hello and welcome to CEA's post-election webinar. Bonjour et bienvenue au webinaire post-électoral de l'Association canadienne de l'électricité. Je suis Francis Bradley, le PDG de l'association. I'd like to introduce my colleagues who will be participating in today's webinar. Michael Powell is CEA's Vice President of Government Relations. And Julia Muggeridge is CEA's Vice President of Communications and Marketing. So today's presentation will be led by Michael Powell, who will walk us through the details of Monday's election results and the impacts on our sector. Uh, following that, we'll take some questions uh, from one another, uh, and then we're going to open the floor to questions from the audience. Uh, now, before I turn it over to Michael, just, I'm just going to read uh, just a, a quick note from yesterday's uh, Globe and Mail uh, and Adam Rudwanski, who noted that uh, talking about the election campaign, although it was not readily apparent from the stinted public discussion on the subject during the campaign, this election went a significant distance towards establishing a consensus on some of the key steps needed for a clean economy transition. So, you know, with that uh, sort of by way of introduction, let me hand it over to Michael uh, to walk us through the presentation details, uh, and then we'll have some questions among us and then get to your questions. So, Michael, over to you. Thank you, Francis, and welcome to everyone. Uh, and thank you for joining us today. It's been uh, a crazy 36 hours since we had a call uh, for what would likely be the government. And I think it's worth acknowledging too that depending on where you are in the country right now, you might not know who your member of parliament is yet, um, that there are still votes being counted as we speak, that uh, because of the times that we live in, that there is an unprecedented number of mail-in and special ballots which uh, takes some time to process. My understanding is that I actually went and told you can look online on Elections Canada, and <laughs> there, there are very few places that are, are all done, uh, all the votes yet. And in some cases, and we'll talk about uh, that could mean the difference between uh, you know who, who gets to come to Ottawa in the course of the next few weeks to speak to you. We, we have a prime minister again, um, or the same prime minister, I should say. Um, Justin Trudeau, at, at the top level, Justin Trudeau's uh, government was re-elected. Um, they, uh, we'll talk about this in a second, maintained uh, the same seat count that they had before. Uh, they continue to have uh, the support of 
you know, a little less than a third of the population in terms of the overall vote uh, that translated to many more seats, 158 as of uh, right now in terms of where they are leading or elected. And again, uh, as it was the case in 2019, with the support of, of one of the other opposition parties, they'll be able to pass legislation in the House of Commons and move things forward. That, that, that should be a relatively stable uh, minority parliament. Um, but here we are, uh, you know, having just spent the last uh, five or six weeks talking about uh, an election uh, and to, to end up in the same place. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. Just at a top level, I think, uh, you know, who's in and who's out. Uh, cabinet making is the thing that um, here at the advocacy team we'll be thinking about as we move uh, through the next couple of weeks. As, as you know, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has uh, committed to, uh, in the past, and, and been able to do it, uh, having a gender equal cabinet, so as many women as men. Um, and in terms of who lost seats, uh, that will have an impact on, on how that gets shaped. Uh, three uh, cabinet ministers lost their seats. For our sector, probably the most important or most notable is uh, Minister Bernadette Jordan, uh, who uh, was the a member of parliament for a rural Nova Scotia riding and uh, and uh, is the outgoing minister of fisheries and oceans. Our, our sector is obviously uh, very interested in that we, uh, <laughs> with with the number of GAMs and, and other things that we operate. Um, uh, but there were two others, uh, also from, both from Ontario, one in the greater Toronto area and, uh, and one from sort of eastern Ontario, Peterborough. Uh, in addition, Catherine McKenna, who was infrastructure minister right up until the uh, the election uh, opted not to run, so there are, are four vacancies from from that. All that are, are women. Um, two liberals. We'll skip ahead a couple of bullets. Um, look like it's at least one, but probably maybe two uh, liberals will have been elected in Alberta. One each in Calgary and Edmonton. They're almost certainly going to be shoe ins for cabinet. And again, there is that Nova Scotia vacancy. Um, both, both winners in Alberta are, are men, so that suggests that there'll probably be some sort of larger cabinet shakeup as we, we enter this, um, and you could see a number of faces change as uh, performers, our strong performers are moved around, uh, people are promoted into slightly more senior roles, and then new cabinet ministers come into perhaps slightly more junior roles. Um, just in terms of people that uh, on the uh, parties that were uh, didn't have many seats selected or will not be, uh, or any at all perhaps, uh, two um, big parties that, that played a role and a prominent one in the election, uh, were the uh, People's Party of Canada and the Greens. Neither leader was able to uh, get themselves elected. Um, uh, you know, the PBC had about 5% of the popular vote, but in the Bose, which is Maxine Bernier's riding, he was, I don't even think he was second. He had, you know, fallen behind his pace in 2019. And then Paul, who ran in Toronto Centre, which is a, a stronghold for the Liberals, uh, finished fourth in that riding and saw the Green vote across the country collapse. There were a couple of reasons for that. Um, not the least of which is they ran substantially fewer candidates than, than in the past, uh, beyond any of the challenges they've seen before. Uh, and, and finally, um, you know, we, we saw the first, but that being said, we saw the first uh, Green Member of Parliament elected in Ontario. Again, sort of provisional, there's there's some votes coming in in uh, Kitchener, um, though that was an assist, at least in part, from the, the Liberal Raj Staney, um, the former Liberal, I should say, basically being told that <laughs> he's not going to be uh, in Parliament as a Liberal uh, anymore. So um, what does this mean? Well, um, th these are in fact different graphs. I, I, I've generated them with different Excel tables, uh, but what we saw was a very similar outcome, uh, al almost to the seat between the two, uh, the last election and this election. And I think it's very, uh, you've probably read that we get the same result 
there are differences here. Um, I think uh, those those big blocks of red and uh, blue um, come from different places. As we talked about, there was a breakthrough for the Liberals in Western Canada. Uh, for the Conservatives, they saw uh, more seats in Atlantic Canada, um, but lost some on on uh, you know in parts of the GTHA and in the Lower Mainland in BC. And importantly, uh, for both uh, the Liberals and Conservatives, um, did not make breakthroughs in places where they expected to. Uh, you know, despite running a softer campaign that uh, was uh, lighter on climate issues, the Conservatives did not see a noticeable improvement in their seat count in Ontario. If anything, they had more votes here this time, but, but ended up with the same result. And ditto for the Liberals in Quebec. Um, if you look at the NDP, um, you know, a, a better run campaign, I think, where people do start being sing a little better, and they end up in you know, one, one seat up um, from where they were. Uh, but policy is where it matters. And so um, we talked about a minority parliament, and I, I think it's worth distinguishing between a minority parliament and minority government. There, there's no such thing as minority government. Cabinet has all the powers that uh, it has, whether they have the most seats in parliament or just a plurality is the case. So cabinet ministers will be able to do cabinet minister things um, unimpeded, apart, but uh, passing legislation is, is going to be the harder thing for the liberals to do. There is obviously a, a, a sort of a natural alliance that you might be able to see between the governing liberals and, and some of the other parties. But the liberals have lots of stuff in their platform and that they had made before that will impact us. Um, the first thing we have here is on climate. So uh, they had committed to a 40 to 45 percent reduction in GHG emissions over 2005 levels by 2030. That emerged in April, uh, you know, just after the budget uh, at the uh, Biden Climate Summit. In the, in the platform, they added a new commitment to a uh, net zero electricity grid by 2035. That's a new commitment. Uh, previously, they said before 2050, but this aligns with the commitment that Joe Biden made as part of his campaign. And um, it's not entirely clear what, what or how we will get there. Um, they, uh, and in, as part of that, have indicated that they will implement a clean electricity standard. Again, something that had been telegraphed previously. We we're actually expecting a consultation document, um, which, which didn't come before the election, and I think we know why now. Uh, second, um, you know, increasing requirements for electric vehicle sales um, by 2030, 100% uh, uh, light and medium and heavy duty vehicle sales by 2040 were feasible. 50% uh, of cars and trucks by uh, 2030. Uh, that obviously they get powered by us as a sector. And then a buy clean strategy to support uh, made in Canada low carbon products. Um, I think that's another one where there's a lot of details to come, but again, uh, buy clean, you see more of this sort of push on the clean side. You know, here's some of the thing on the net zero grid. I mean, I don't have to, we're, we're, I suspect I don't have to tell anyone in this audience that we're already 80% GHG free in Canada. Uh, our coal is coal is being on the way of, of phased out by 2030, and uh, in terms of sectoral emissions, uh, you know we're almost down by almost half since 2005. That's ahead of our target. Um, to hit that grid target for 2035, it will be in all of the above. The challenge will be uh, the pace at which uh, it's it's possible to be done. Uh, 2035 is basically 13 years away. And the uh, low-hanging fruit of emissions reductions and uh, switching to from you know big stable power sources uh, has largely already been done. The last ones are going to be the hard ones. Uh, and how we balance that against reliability and affordability is one of the challenges. Um, at the end of the day, uh, you know the the public will not have a tolerance for giant bills. Um, people just won't be able to afford it. So how this gets paid for and how this is done 
in a way that can possibly meet these timelines is, is a big challenge that I honestly don't think the government gets, uh, but that's one of the things that we at CEA will be thinking about and working with government on as the, the months move forward. And here's just a, a sign on the EV targets. Uh, they, they are ambitious, uh, but you know, Francis and I had a, a meeting with um, one of the uh, associations for OEM manufacturers, vehicles, and, and they're also not entirely sure how they're going to hit them, that it's uh, a lot to scale up the production, that the technology is you know, getting there, but the uh, supply and, uh, and the cost of all of this is there. So again, we're seeing lots of commitments, but how, how do we move forward with where the, the new tech steps are? Uh, indigenous is another one. Um, and this is like, again, a, a hard challenge. And if the uh, problem with net zero emissions in our sector by 2035 is one of sort of focus and and really to a certain extent it's a cash problem and a pace problem that the technological solution may be there, maybe might not be able to afford it. Indigenous policy is one that, you know, we can't just go and buy more things or work harder or pay more. The the hard work of rolling up our sleeves on reconciliation is is only just beginning. Um, the government at the very 11th hour of the last parliament uh, passed under legislation to move forward on it. And, and we haven't seen the beginnings of the action plan process for it yet. So that, that's an area where it really affects our members. Like if we're, um, you know, we, we operate in lots of places. I think we have uh, made a, a commitment to move forward on these things. And, the, you know, the process with which the government expects and our Indigenous partners expect to move forward on this remains exceptionally unclear. So, so what does all this mean and, and where are we going to go? Well, um, you know, the votes are still being counted. Uh, uh, per the pro proclamation of the election, Parliament is set to resume on October 18th. That's a soft date. It could be earlier, it could be later, probably won't be earlier. Um, we'll see a cabinet appointment before then. Um, that's usually two to three weeks. So expect that sort of um, mid to late October. I would be expecting probably sometime after Thanksgiving at this point as staff from all parties, you know, take a break and uh, get a bit of sleep. There'll be a throne speech uh, when Parliament resumes. So on, on the 18th or, or on around there. And then uh, the next, the first big government objective uh, coming out of this will be the conference of the parties in Glasgow and UK, which will be uh, a major focus. Um, government has uh, made some climate commitments for itself. And, uh, you know, is a lot of this agenda is being driven by the UK, but also by the Biden administration, which is looking to make a splash on this. Um, particularly given that some of their domestic priorities are a challenge right now, a uh, big international one will be a, a focus for them. Uh, what's next for us? Well, um, you know, this is where the work starts for us in a lot of ways. We are we get to be spectators during the election, uh, but we'll be preparing welcome packages for all members of parliament. Uh, we'll be sending them a copy of our state of the uh, electricity industry, our grid magazine, and more. Uh, we'll be issuing congratulations and uh, welcomes and uh, soliciting meetings with cabinet ministers, figuring out who is working for who and, and what the, uh, the staff are. Um, we will be launching next week uh, a targeted social media campaign for influencers. Uh, and when I say influencers, I don't mean the Instagram ones. I mean people that have decision-making power in Ottawa. Um, that on uh, social media, uh, emphasizing the role that electricity plot can play in uh, net zero and support that we need. And then just the sort of usual advocacy that, uh, you know, get to work and um, be clear on uh, what our sector needs and where our supports are, and because there's a bunch of stuff coming up very quickly, whether it be uh, you know rolling out UNDRIP, uh, clean electricity standard, and even the 2022 federal budget. Other considerations. Uh, well, we talked about some of these things. 
but maybe um, uh, what we can do is I can bring my colleagues in here and we can start thinking about some of these things uh, that can uh, go from it. Because I just don't need to be me talking about it. I think the big thing from this is uh, the usual question is who won. Um, and Francis, I'll, I'll let you start navigating through some of these perhaps, but the uh, opportunity I think uh, is to, uh, that's a tough question. Obviously Justin Trudeau gets to be prime minister. That's a better spot to be in than, than not being prime minister. Uh, but if you look at where every party had their objectives at any point, um, certainly this is not a majority government. Um, if you are the Tories, uh, this result would have been pretty good at the beginning, middle of August, but feels like a real defeat given where things were the second or third week of the campaign. And you have to wonder for the NDP who spent a lot of money to end up in the same spot um, is, is kind of a, a rough go. Um, and, and you know, what, what comes next with some of these things? When, when the taps start slowing down, what will people do? Uh, who, who's gonna pay for all of this as, 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 as people? And then uh, finally, um, you know, are, are people gonna start changing their minds on, on climate in some way? Is it going to be more real or is this still going to be, you know, talking about whose plan is best before things are actually done? Well, Francis, I'll turn it back to you. I'm going to take a breath and uh, let's get on with the conversation. Okay. Thank you, Michael. And yeah, at the, at the front uh, uh, of the webinar, I did quote that article by Adam Rodwanski. He used the term stint, stinted, stinted public discussion, um, um, although he did, you know, suggest that there was, there was clearly consensus around some areas, and yeah, in terms of in terms of my take on the election before before I get to some of the some of the questions, um, I, you know, I, I think Adam I, I think Adam nailed it using the term stinted. I think it was a diplomatic term to use, but but you know, honestly, and some of the staff here at CEA are probably bored of hearing me, you know, complain about this, but. You know, the, I really felt that there was a lack of public dialogue about what I think are the two most significant and potentially transformative issues of our time. Uh, the first one being net zero by 2050. Just the, the scope and scale of changes that are going to take place in society for us to achieve net zero 2050 are enormous. And it isn't just about electricity. We're talking about a, a, a real, you know, a massive uh, transformation, you know, on the scale of the first industrial revolution, uh, for us to actually you know, get to net zero 2050, and that really wasn't part of the, the discussion and the dialogue. Honestly, the 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 election campaign. I said this to a, a group earlier today that I was talking to. Um, often on um, uh, questions of climate change, it, it felt almost like that 1970s game show, name that tune. Where you know one party said no, it'll be thirty percent, and you know, and then the other leader said no, we'll do forty to forty-five percent, and and then the NDP said no, it's going to be fifty percent uh, for us, and you know, maybe you know somebody else said I can name that tune, and you know, in, in three notes, um, but we didn't get beyond that uh, in terms of the, the dialogue, and then the second issue that I think is is um, or should be transformative uh, is uh, indigenous reconciliation. It was such an enormous issue in this country for the last six months, and then the election campaign happened, and it, it didn't get the attention that it, it obviously deserves. Uh, you know, certainly because of uh, the discoveries um, um, uh, at uh, residential schools, but also the fact that, as a country, we passed legislation now that that uh, enshrines the declarations of the rights of Indigenous people into Canadian law. 
but we didn't have a, a conversation, a discussion about, about how that is actually going to work uh, and how it, it is, uh, if we're going to live up to those commitments, how it's going to transform politics and how it's going to transform society. So I think on the two big issues, um, the the uh, public discussion, to use Adam Rudwanski's term, was, was stinted, to say the least. Why don't I turn over to uh, Julia? Uh, Julia, why don't you give us um, your view on, you know, what could this mean for, because we talked about the Liberal Party platform. The other, we've got two, two parties that can govern, that, can, that have been able to muster enough support over the last century to be able to govern. The other one's the Conservative Party. Um, you know, what does the election result mean for the Conservative Party and for Aaron O'Toole in the coming years? Thanks, Francis, and thank you, Mike and Francis, for letting me join this panel. Um, I think the first thing I should note is that Aaron O'Toole is sticking around. So he announced on Monday morning that he plans on continuing into the next election. And I honestly think that this is a really good thing for the Conservative Party. We saw with Andrew Scheer a lack of uh, recognition. People didn't really know who he was. And then he he left uh, as leader in 2019. So for Aaron O'Toole to step down right away in, in 2021, I think would have been detrimental because we need some time to get to know the leader of the Conservative Party. And a lot of airtime went to Justin Trudeau in the last couple of years, probably because of the pandemic. We turned to him for comfort uh, for a lot of people. Um, he was he was where we found out about financial aid. And so he was center stage for the last year. And Aaron O'Toole really had to take a supporting role uh, as leader of the opposition party in that. Um, so at the start of the campaign, he did not have high likability. Um, same with Justin Trudeau. But as the as the incumbent, that, that's almost expected with, with some failed promises, some ethics difficulties. But when you are coming in as a, as a new leader, uh, you want to be well-liked and, and coming in strong and be on the, on the offensive for the campaign. So um, best of luck to the Conservative Party over the next couple of years. They certainly have a lot to think about. They took a moderate Conservative um, attempt at their platform and in doing so probably lost uh, some of their supporters on the right, uh, whether to the PPC or people just chose to stay at home. So it would be, it, it's going to be interesting to probably work for the Conservative Party for the next couple of years to try to figure out how to, how to win a, a conservative minority government in, in more of a left-leaning country. In terms of the Conservative Party platform, um, I, I actually was was pretty impressed with the with the climate policies that were put forward. Um, Aaron O'Toole, I believe, had five billion set aside for carbon capture, which is great. He was following the same emissions reduction targets that had been set aside or or uh, committed to by Stephen Harper and then Justin Trudeau, which was 30 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. And in the debate, he was really questioned on that, like why don't why aren't we going higher? Why aren't we saying 40, 50, or 60? And he said, I want something achievable. However, you know, he's he he sounds like he's willing to work on this. He believes in climate change. He thinks it's important to address. So it would be nice to see some collaboration in this in this government between the Conservatives, the NDP, and the Liberals uh, with regards to climate. And the other thing we're going to be looking for uh, with this opposition party is 
tough questions about energy affordability. So of course, this is all going to cost a lot of money. Michael has talked about 2035, this is not gonna be cheap and this needs to happen soon. And so um, energy affordability is going to be a big question mark. And we really lean on the opposition party to ask those tough questions when the government is spending the money. So as always, I think uh, at CEA, we take a very nonpartisan approach. We will, we will be talking to all parties over the next couple of years about these really important issues. But I think overall, Aaron O'Toole made some headway, but uh, there's a lot of work to do on, on, that, on that front. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. Any comment, either Julia or Michael? Uh, we, we talked about the liberals. We talked about the the conservatives. Uh, the, the NDP. Like Julia, you mentioned, um, you know, the polling numbers and, and, and likability as a factor. Um, we did read a lot about that. You know, that likability as as uh, certainly a, a a factor and a feature of uh, Jagmeet Singh from the NDP, but it didn't translate into uh, any kind of a breakthrough. Um, is it is it because policy in the end? What did you say, Michael? Earlier, policy is what matters. Well, I I, I don't, I'm not sure I would say that that is what matters during an election campaign. I think, yeah. Francis, one of the reasons why we focused on things which um, at times seemed very small is because they move the votes that need to be moved. Uh, and for those that um, care about things like climate policy, their their votes were probably largely already made up. Uh, as an example, just on another issue, my members of my family were complaining that the Liberals were never talking about their daycare strategy, uh, were instead talking about banning or unbanning certain kinds of assault weapons. Uh, but you know, these folks made up, and so their their maths were working out on that. I think the big thing here uh, that's a hard thing for the NDP is um, figuring what they want to be. And uh, I think the, I mean the BQ have it easy. They are just going to grow and talk about Quebec and ask for more money and less responsibility for the rest of things. And that's you know a place that works and that, that works for them. But for the NDP, um, this is a very left-leaning government. On climate, they are pushing on things in a way that other parties just haven't before. Um, and you know whether it's good or bad or implemented well or poorly, it remains to be seen. Um, but the kind of targets that they would set would be classically NDP territory. And it's, it's tough to play in that space. And it, I think you heard a lot from the NDP too throughout that they would be asked questions and they, they on what their platform meant, on, on what the targets, like how they would do something. And there you know, wasn't uh, really ever any answer for it. That, you know, we're gonna have a national pharmacare plan and Jeff Bezos is gonna pay for it. Um, but uh, I think they'll have to work on that. Um, but I think the, the clearer thing here is like, no one is farther ahead than they were. Um, no one is more or less popular. There's lots of reasons why you would expect that maybe they should be, uh, but uh, but they're not. And so, the is this a pox in all their houses? Is this the collective will of the Canadian public saying that we were sort of comfortable where we are? Is this a bit of a, a do-over to 2019 where we can move forward uh, for a couple of years at least without a pandemic in the way and implement some of the things we talked about then? Um, you know, people don't speak with one voice on this, but that to me is, is sort of the, what I hope parties take from this, that uh, there's a, a push to, to do something, to move forward on things. And really, uh, if there's anything, I think the, the lesson from this is you can't just talk about the pandemic. Uh, people are wanting to go see what comes next. And uh, now that, that's really going to be the case. 
if I can okay. if I can add to if I yeah, can add please. to that, I mean, to have a, a 50% reduction on 2005 levels by 2030, um, it's an it's an aspirational goal that was set up by the NDP, but they were missing some meat to that platform, and we are going to need multiple strategies here on on buildings, on vehicles, on industrial decarbonization, on clean technology, and we need to see that really outlined because those aspirational goals, when they're set too high, it it's it's almost hard to believe in them. Um, and, and and not having that costed out, I think, was detrimental. And I think Jagmeet Singh heard that loud and clear in the debate. His answer was fossil fuel subsidies again and again. But when you're saying something like 50%, we need to hear all of the things. And I realized the debate format was also, you know, it had its own problems um, and whatnot. But that, that might be, be the only thing that people hated more than this whole election. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but to, I mean, to your point, Julia, the the uh, the the analysis by the the PBO that says we're we're going to miss our Paris targets by 79 megatons um, under the current uh, trajectory. So so that 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 suggests that a 50 percent target by 2030 means we're going to miss it by even uh, you know even that exactly. much more. Yeah, yeah. Okay, listen, I've got a couple of questions coming in. Let, let's start uh, with Michael. Michael, who are our champions in this new House of Commons? Um, uh, who, are, who are we going to be able to lean on? Uh, who, are, who are the people that are, are going to be the, the friends of the sector or the, the, the people that understand us that, that might be able to carry our water on some of their issues? So, um, you know, I, I think we're pretty lucky to have uh, support across uh, all parties. Um, you know, we've had a good relationship with the, the former, as an example, energy critic for the Democrats, uh, Randall Garrison. We've had good working relationships with a number of Liberal MPs, including Nance Badaway, who is still ahead in, in Niagara Centre. Um, and then, you know, across the Conservatives of, uh, with people that have uh, various issues. I think one thing that sets us apart from other sectors is that um, there are so many issues that affect us that uh, we have different champions depending on the sort of focus that we want to see. As an example, if we're talking about EVs, there are EV enthusiasts in a way that uh, you know might might draw on for some issues, and on others, when we talk about um, you know reliability or cybersecurity, uh, we will approach them to to talk about those things. I think the the takeaway for us is to just you know keep uh, being clear on how these decisions and actions affect their uh, constituents, particularly as we start thinking about where cost and affordability and reliability might meet, um, and, and the things that they can tangibly do about it. And I'll, I'll give you an example. One of our, our more arcane issues has been talking about updating the Electricity Gas Inspection Act um, and others, um, but uh, you know, really driven by us, have been pushing on this issue for a number of time. And, you know, meetings with members of parliament articulate their way up to the minister's office uh, that uh, in turn, you know, make them consider doing things. And on that one, there is money to measurement Canada, update the act, um, or at least do some research on it. And that is not the sort of thing that happens without a squeaky wheel. And so, um, you know, we're good at identifying the places where we can identify grease that needs to be applied. I'm not sure how we stretch this one. Uh, but that that can push our message within caucus and and then up to uh, the minister's office and the cabinet. And, and that's going to be even more important as uh, big pieces start getting decided, like the clean electricity standard, like what 
2035 uh, net zero electricity means, like uh, what an electric vehicle mandate means. Great. Okay. Uh, and and for for those who are watching, use the uh, you can use the uh, question function uh, in the window if you want to fire questions in. Julia, here's one for you. Um, how will um, we be focusing our communication efforts in the coming months and years? Uh, what's has, has anything changed, and what's going to be the what's going to be the focus as a result post election? Yeah, and and just going into this election, we thought it might be a liberal majority. That's what it was looking like, and and so we were able to do a lot of planning around that. So we haven't had to pivot too much. Um, over the next eighteen months, we're really focusing on 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 the theme of accelerate. It's something we've talked a lot about internally. And, you know, 2035 is is very close. And as Michael mentioned earlier, we need long lead time on a lot of these these mega projects that that may be needed for to meet our our growing electrification needs. So our message to government, uh, to all parties is going to be like, we need to get moving, pace needs to increase, we need to accelerate. Um, in terms of more more specific things, we, we've already planned this net zero by 2050 targeted campaign to influencers. And really, this is just letting members of parliament and government know. And, and there are lots of there are lots of uh, new MPs, but also some returning that can also be educated on this. But you can't get to net zero by 2050 without electricity. And that is as basic as this campaign goes. And of course, will be followed up by advocacy on our end. Um, also, We've, we've started doing some communications to our member customers. So for, for our members on the call, to your customers. And we're really trying to create that, that connection between uh, climate change and electricity. Because again, a lot of people just haven't made that connection yet. Um, so over the next couple of years, and we've planned a multi-year campaign, which I think is even more prevalent now that we've re-elected a liberal government that has these new and very aggressive targets, we're going to be talking to customers about things like electricity and climate change are connected, and this is going to affect you how. And so once we, we've done that, that soft um, relationship of electricity and climate change, we'll start to introduce themes like affordability. This might mean your bills may go up. And so this is really the job of the government, but we're going to be helping our members start to um, softly uh, show our, our, our customers that, the, that this is coming. And if you do care about climate change, then it's then it's, um, you know, you, you may see you're going to see some effects. So recent polling we did said Canadians care about climate change, the majority of them, but like 13 percent are willing to pay a, a you know, any significant amount for it. So we're paying attention to that number and we're very, very aware of it, especially after Monday's election, because it's, it's going to cost Canadians some money. So uh, lot, lots of comms efforts underway and I'm excited to get going again on, on, some, on some ads. So and back to you, Francis. Okay. Yeah, uh, we've got a couple of related questions. Um, maybe let's start with this one and, and then we'll, we'll link out to it. Uh, Michael, can you speak? Uh, about some of the liberal platform promises on EVs. There was reference to uh, retrofitting existing buildings with charging stations, and I suspect there needs to be some LDC consultation on that. And, and I know, well, Michael, you and I and, 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 and others uh, have, been, have been involved in some of those. Can you, can you comment on where we might go next on this? Yeah, so I, I think the biggest thing that we've seen uh, in, in this campaign, and it wasn't just the Liberals too, it was a, a major part of the Conservatives uh, platform as well, uh, to uh, 
basically create uh, an EV mandate. So require that a certain percentage of uh, vehicles that are sold are, are electric. And that's, that's an important shift as opposed to setting a target, uh, which, which drives the likes of you know, Ford, GM, and Toyota and all them crazy um, uh, to uh, you know, foster on the supply side. The government has uh, been uh, helping with demand for some time. There is a, an existing uh, rebate for electric vehicles. There is supports, and there's been a lot of money that's rolled out for facilitating EV chargers. I think we'll see more about energy efficiency as we move forward. Uh, this was one of those other things where they announced a strategy and a, a target and uh, really like putting a commitment down. And uh, there was a, a quote we had from Omar uh, Algebra, who was the transport minister, uh, uh, on that with, with all details to be sorted out over the summer. And um, well, the election happened, so that got sideswiped. I think where, where we have been focusing is being clear on where the opportunities are for vehicle or transportation electrification, particularly EVs, for helping build uh, a more efficient grid. And we say that when we mean like um, figuring out I mean, how we can minimize some of those investments that might have to happen so that we don't transfer the cost to the right pair, how we can use other tools to support them. Um, as an example, CEA has been advocating that funds from the clean fuel standard can be used to offset uh, grid investments on these sorts of things. And then third, how we can do some load balancing to minimize the need for any investments or, or use off-peak power. Um, my, my colleague, Jay Wilson, is, is keen to point out that uh, like even just reminding people that nine times out of 10, you can probably just use a trickle charge, just plug into the, the 110 plug on the side of your house with uh, your EV, and that will you know more than offset uh, the, the gas you would use on a typical day. So it, it's these sorts of conversations where we can uh, spot opportunities, uh, figure out how we can use uh, power that is otherwise being used off peak, and then minimize the sort of extra drain that might happen because it's right now at least not a, a problem of is there enough electricity? It's just if you have 10 people all plugged in at the same time, what does that do on a local level? And, there, and there's ways around that, but part of it is just reminding people that an EV is different than a gas car. Okay. Um, well, it's kind of related to that. Uh, somebody else has asked, uh, what would be the impact to uh, business-related funding programs for uh, climate actions such as those for EV infrastructures and, and others? We, we've had some funding programs um, uh, that, uh, that were, were uh, uh, in existence prior to the election. What happens uh, as we go into the big 43rd parliament? Uh, well, I, I think it's safe to say that if the Liberals passed it, and it, it will continue, um, I, you know, what that means for, for refunding or how other mechanisms move forward, then that, that's less clear. Uh, I, I would say that the uh, because the, the balance of power rests more or less where it was before, and that um, you know likely partners to support the Liberals are are to the left of where they are. They want them to be more ambitious, um, and they are uh, you know not not particularly parsimonious. I think would be another comment is that uh, the push to change or alter those, if anything, will will err on the side of more, not less. Uh, and what we've heard from the NDP so far, at least, who seem to be the most obvious target to prop the government up um, so far, is that they're looking for things like a tax on billionaires, which for you know billionaires on the 
call that is probably a rethink you should talk to your accountant for, uh, but uh, will will be less of a deal uh, for for most of us. Uh, another question just came in. This is from uh, from from Rob uh, Litzenberger. Uh, you've mentioned uh, the Paris targets and the fact that the current uh, trajectory is to come up short during the election. There was a lot of promises and discussion on the targets uh, and uh, whether they're being met or not. I'm more confused than ever as to whether or not we're on track uh, to where we at. Can you clarify and comment on the new 40% target promised promise by the prime minister? So um, I, I know, Julia, we've been using that 79 megaton um, uh, item that came from the parliamentary budget officer. Now, was that based upon the 30% 2030 target? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah in so. answer to Rob's question, the gap is, is even larger now based upon the 40 to 45%. During the election, there was some, um, with all due respect to the PDO, um, some look at the various climate plans and how they match up to ambition. Uh, and uh, from you know reasonably nonpartisan climate folk, they thought that the Liberals' stated objectives are are best able to be where they want to be. Um, the we're also on our third climate plan in, in nine months with with the, this government. Um, with a, a new plan in December that was designed to meet the 2030 targets, uh, 30%. Then uh, they clarified that uh, on the week of the budget that it would be they'd be able to hit 36 uh, with their existing measures, and then two days later upped it to 40 to 45% with the with the fudge. The the reason why uh, we haven't seen them yet is some new measures like uh, the clean electricity standard. Again, whatever that means. Um, uh, you know what a the effect of $170 carbon tax does, how the clean fuel standard will have an impact on things, and, and other measures to TBD, like energy efficiency, and uh, there's been a host of industrial electrification things yet. Um, the campaign, uh, I don't think anyone was well served by this fight over you've never hit any of the targets you've set, uh, because while true, um, the target that the government has, and this government has always had, has been for 2030. And, and that's still eight years away. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that we should all have a, a healthy skepticism until we start actually seeing emissions decline and what that trend line looks like. Uh, and uh, like to, to date, emissions have gone up and we should be at the inflection point where they begin to go down or we're just not gonna hit our targets. And, and that's, that's it. Right. And we've never hit our targets in the past. Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm with Rob. I'm more confused uh, than ever, but uh, I I see why. Okay, Crystal, uh, Liberal platform said it would accelerate the transition from fossil fuel-based heating systems to electrification through incentives and standards. Electrification of heating will increase capacity needs, particularly in winter peaking regions, uh, which uh, have uh, system-wide GTD implications. How uh, does CA plan to engage with government to communicate these implications? Uh, very well, it's, I think, the, the short answer to this. Uh, <laughs> we, we've been working with some partners on this one. Um, we've had some really interesting conversations with um, an association that represents the HVAC industry, which has looked into the opportunities that ground source heat pumps can offer. Um, basically, uh, they are very expensive upfront, uh, but offer some opportunities for 
heating that, uh, you know, by their measures, uh, reduce system costs by just requiring less electricity. Um, I, I think the way of thinking about heating is, is getting back to the, the idea, to rem a reminder that it's net zero by 2050. And we all get hung up on the zero, but not the net or the 2050. Yeah. And um, I think this is one of those areas where we're going to have to start thinking about very creative solutions because the answer, like I grew up in Nova Scotia, we all had baseboard heaters, and that's just not going to happen. Um, but I have a natural gas furnace now, and between now and 2050, I'll probably replace it two times. And um, we're in the point where we have to think about these opportunities for infrastructure, our own personal like infrastructure investments and, and what that means and how we can make sure that people make the best choices. And it'll be a mix of um, figuring out what the right technology is so that people make an investment that has good climate impacts, that they're not buying old technology about investing in uh, energy efficiency so that you're not leaking heat into the atmosphere and, and more. But, um, you know, that, that's a hard problem. Um, and honestly, we've been very focused on some of the the nearer term ones, but it's an area where we're going to have to shift as, as the government gets there. I, I've got I, a I question. The, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, I, was, I was just going to add that I think the carbon price will have will have a big effect on yep. that. Like we're at we're, we're at forty dollars a ton. If we get up to one hundred and seventy dollars a ton in, in the next couple of years, uh, people are going to it, the effects will will take a toll on consumers and they'll have to act accordingly. So it's it's going to be less about which appliance do I prefer and more about what's what's the bottom line. Yeah, natural yeah. gas will be less competitive in 2030 as compared to, uh, you know, versus electricity that is today. Right, at $170 a ton, yeah. 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 And uh, all yeah. the people, sorry, for instance, just between now and 2030, that will replace the furnace. And that is a 20-year asset. And so it's like, how do we make sure that they move forward with that choice and not just stick ourselves um, in old technology? Yeah, yeah, and all, all of these things, that's, that's, that's part of the challenge as well. What's the, what's the cycle to capital stock turnover? Yeah. Um, you know, as you say, appliances, it's, it's 20 years, vehicles, it's, you know, 10 to 12 years, just because, you know, we, 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 we tomorrow would start, uh, you know, uh, having many more electric vehicles available in the marketplace. Anybody that's bought an internal combustion car over the last seven or eight years is still going to drive it until it's reached the end of its useful life. Um, my friend Bill, it came in by email, but my friend Bill over at Hitachi ABB has asked, uh, a, a couple of questions here, um, uh, and I, I'll link it to a question I had in an earlier session with one of our members' boards this morning. Um, so Bill's uh, asking, how successful will the Liberal Party be in achieving the electricity elements uh, of our clean uh, power advantages, the, the platform elements, you know, the 100% net zero emitting electricity, uh, the investment tax credits for recoverable energy and battery storage systems, pan-Canadian grid uh, council, et cetera, et cetera. So, I, and, and let me add to that. First off, um, the, uh, maybe uh, a preface to that was a question I got from one of our members' boards this morning, and that is, um, for these specific elements, do they have do they have dance partners uh, in the opposition that are going to give them the ability to move forward on these pieces? Number one, and then number two, to you know, to to the core of Bill's question, are they going to be successful? Are these things that are are, are actually going to work? Well, I think the answer is that yes, they have dance partners. Um, uh, if you again, if you look at the commitments, um, Jagmeet Singh was was on. Uh, TV a whole lot telling the Liberals that 
I mean, they're basically the same as the conservatives and they haven't done anything. So wanting to do something a little more ambitious is not going to be a, a problem. The, uh, I, I think on the, the question of how successful are they going to be, um, I, I, you know, that, that's a harder one. Uh, yeah. I hope they're successful. I think that these are good things that um, if, if in as much as they are possible, will will help stop a climate crisis, which will make all of our lives worse. Um, but it's their willingness to uh, engage with stakeholders, come with an open mind about possible solutions. And, uh, you know, as, as Julia said, really just think about who's going to pay for it and how is it going to be paid for? And how are we going to work with the provinces to do these things? Because at the end of the day, um, all of, you know, electricity is provincially regulated, that there will be regulators that have to pass some of these things. And uh, I think that an open mind that thinks about affordability and what our best way of uh, reducing emissions is on a cost per ton basis, um, working with, with all of us, not just like me, Julia and Francis, but like literally the sectors that are involved here will be able to move it forward. This isn't, um, this isn't like an essay writing contest for the folks at Environment Canada. This is a transformative change of how we run our economy. And, and that has to happen in collaboration. And if government comes and, and challenges us and is forceful that we have to meet that challenge, uh, but also listens and is responsive to how we say we can actually do things, then, then I think it could be possible. And whether that will happen or not, that's anybody's guess. Uh, another question here uh, from Dan, even with the federal rebate on EVs, we've not seen a huge uptake in EV purchases outside of Quebec and BC, where provinces have a rebate program. Um, do you see the government uh, putting out an aggressive electrification transportation program similar to Biden's in the United States? I, I guess the subtext of this is they've made commitments about EVs. How, how are they going to do them? Will it, will it just be more and more rebates or, or will it be, I don't know, the approach similar to Norway where they, they basically don't charge tax on uh, electric vehicles and, and no duties? Uh, any, any sense of where they might go with this? Uh, I think a mandate will amount to uh, that sort of fee-based system. Like it will, if, if you'll, you'll have to sell a certain amount for, or buy credits that's bothered like it is in Quebec and BC. Um, you know, I'm seeing more Teslas around than I used to, uh, and I don't think that's observation bias. And I think if you were watching, uh, you know, sports or anything that's on real TV and not Netflix, you're seeing ads from, uh, you know, non-Tesla OEMs for all the EVs they want to sell, including an electric F-150. So, you know, more supply is coming. I think, you know, I bought a new car last year. I, I bought an internal combustion engine vehicle. Uh, but the opportunity uh, for... Uh, the kind of car you wanted and availability was was not there, even beyond price. And I think that people are, are starting to get their heads around it. But it's going to be um, a change in how we think about things because EVs are not internal combustion engine cars. They last differently. They are perform differently. And uh, some people haven't made that leap yet. But the more and more you talk to people, um, they're, they're looking to make that change. I, I uh, left out when I was preparing this deck this morning, there was a, a quote from the minister, um, you know, that I included. We believe that it's doable, it needs determination, it needs focus, it needs effort. And almost in almost every news outlet when this was released said it also needs money. 
Like that, mm. this mandate is going to require a lot of incentives for dealerships. People are having a hard time getting EVs. I think Francis, you have personal experience with with Six wait times on this. Wait. Yeah, I'm on the waiting list. Yeah. So if we want to see more more EVs in dealerships lots, like the policies that the government is coming out with, they are again going to need to reflect the the aspirational vision that they're that they're setting that they're putting out. Yeah. And some of this is a chicken and egg thing. Like a dealer will tell you, because a dealer on a lot like buys the car first and then they sell it to you. They're not they're not in the business of having cars they can't sell. Uh, but also there's just not vehicles to buy, and there's reasons for that. Uh, it's you know where they apportion where they think the sales are, and you know mandates maybe will help fix some of that. Uh, right now, some of the challenge is just where do you get the materials to make things. The the holdup is a two cent microchip. Um, on, on some vehicles and that's pandemic related. So it's, how do we move forward on these things? Um, uh, you know, there, there's no easy answers. And again, I think it's another one where there's been very good announcements, um, but all the details about how you do them are much more complicated. And there's a lot of nuance in there that, that doesn't lend itself well to a 36 day election campaign. Yeah. Okay. It would be nice to, to see a, an announcement that came out with like all of the policy details and then we could really get on board with it and not just excited about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and as, as we've been saying for, for the longest time, uh, Julia, that, that, that uh, aspirations are, are great, but aspiration isn't policy. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and what, what's, what's the policy actually going to be? What are the policy instruments? Um, in uh, in Bill's question, you know, he, he referenced something that was in the in the platform, and I see it here. Create a pan-Canadian grid council to promote infrastructure investments, smart grids, grid integration, and electricity sector innovation, with the goal of making Canada the most reliable, cost-effective, and carbon-free electricity producer in the world. But, uh, again, that's aspirational. It isn't it isn't very specific. Although there is something specific there, a pan-Canadian grid council. Um, is this I, I, I'm not sure. And any any observations on what this could look like, or or what we should be pressing the government for as they look to set up this pan-Canadian grid council? I, it, it almost sounds like the you know folks that select the team to go throw the one ring into the into the pits of Mordor. Um, I, I think it, it's an area where they need more detail. We can't go into a meeting without. Uh, government asking us about regional transmission. Uh, usually they spoke four minutes. Uh, boy, they say, why do we have more interprovincial transmission? And I, you know, that would be my guess about where this comes from. But when you start thinking about some of the other technologies that are in there, um, uh, you know, we'll see where that comes. One thing that we, we hinted at this uh, is the, the, the provincial nature of electricity means that there needs to be buy-in from the provinces about how some of these things move forward. So our members are able to make the investments that they have. And I think as we see opportunities like the Atlantic Loop, which is a, a regional electrification plan, uh, move forward, those sorts of, uh, and that's that has our members as well as provincial representatives working with the federal government about how they can do these things. That, that to me seems like the prototype for how you might expand this uh, a grid council, uh, but it's where you find these dance partners to make these things work that would be a challenge. But again, that's a commitment that was written down and the, the energy section of the platform is 300 words, uh, maybe 600 words, like it's not very long, uh, but more details will need to come. And that's, 
you know, when we you know firm up who the, the environment minister is and who the natural resources minister are, will be some of the first questions that we're asking. Okay. Julie, I asked you a little, a little while ago about our focus on communications. Michael, what about uh, advocacy lobby days? What's uh, what's the plan there? Um, so uh, we in, in, a, in a COVID world. Yeah, well, so I should say that we've been meeting with lots of people one on one uh, virtually uh, with uh, Zoom has allowed for that. Um, we are very interested in transitioning back to in person. Um, I think what we'll see is uh, our board is going to be gathering in Ottawa in November in person um, that will use that as an opportunity to introduce ourselves to a couple of uh, ministers with uh, presuming that there's a willingness to, to meet in person. And then we each year have an annual deputy minister meeting, which has uh, been going on for 20 years or something to that effect. Yep. And uh, we'll expand that beyond deputy ministers to include about our senior level representation. Right now, we have in our target to do a traditional Hill Day where we bring uh, representatives from member companies to Ottawa for a day or two of meetings, uh, maybe have our center of excellence and, and just see everyone that will take us on Parliament Hill and talk about electricity uh, in the April or May timeframe. Uh, we don't want to be first at this. Uh, we definitely want to be last. And our hope is that by April, um, we'll, you know, MPs will have found where the washrooms are as a start and that the uh, things will have settled down again so that the the things that make being in Ottawa valuable for this will be doable. All right. Uh, so I've got one final question for both of you. As I see, we're, we're almost out of time. Um, if we think back uh, 10 years ago, that election was characterized by the, you know, the orange wave, the orange crush. If we think back six years ago, that election, you know, if you, if you ask people, what do they remember from the election six years ago, it was... Yeah, kind of like Trudeau mania again, uh, you know, many years later, but for the sun. Um, a year or two from now, if somebody asks you, what the heck was that election back in, you know, 2021? What was it all about? What are, what are, you know, what are you going to say uh, that, 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 you know, what's the, that, that short little blurb about it, the election was this? Uh, Michael, I'll start with you. And then Julia, you get the last word. So I, you know, when, you, when you look back, this election would have been about what? I, I think the lesson is get to work. And uh, that, uh, you know, we got through the pandemic and that derailed the last few years. Um, this, the previous parliament never really had a chance to get on with any of the things it wanted to get on with because we've had extraordinary circumstances. And uh, the, the outcome of this will be that a parliament has returned that is basically the same makeup as before with basically the same objectives as before, maybe a little faster in some places than others. And um, the, the public wants to see things moving, that there is not an overwhelming love or hatred for anyone. And I think the other thing is that hopefully this is the time where we learn that uh, this isn't just about positioning yourself so you can win a majority. It's you got to roll up the sleeves and get things done. And honestly, if I was advising folk on this, um, I think it's a lot easier to turn around and run and point to something tangible you've done in two or three or four years than it is to, you know, gin up a reason for an election or, as we saw this time, just call one and, and hope that people see why you want to do it. Okay. I, I, think, the, I think yesterday you referred to it as a, a pandemic mulligan. Uh, yes, we, <laughs> you, get to do, you get to do 2019 all over again. And I feel like a lot of us are feeling that. So uh, it's it's the longest March of 2020 ever. <laughs> All right. 
Okay, Julia, uh, years from now, when people say to you, you were around for that 2021 election, you were in Ottawa. What was it all about? I'd, I'd probably say, what election? You know, it it, it is status <laughs> quo, but I think we have, yeah, so my word is meh. M-E-H. But I think that we have 12 months to get a lot done. And we saw the Liberals make a lot of progress on policy between December and June of last year. So if they have a really good 12 months, Canadians will be able to start to see the fruits of these climate policies and these changes. So, I mean, let's get back to work. And CEA is here. We're going to get to work with them. Awesome. Uh, Michael, Julia, thank you very much for for the uh, attendees. Thank you for joining us. And for those that asked questions, thank you for, for firing your questions in. This uh, brings it to a close. Uh, thank you very much. Merci beaucoup d'avoir uh, passé un petit peu de l'après-midi avec nous autres. Si vous avez d'autres questions, if you have any other questions, you can always reach out to us. And you know where to find us, electricity.ca. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor. Tune in for future podcasts in this series, which will include industry, government, and stakeholder guests further discussing the implications of and the pathways to the net zero future. And as always, let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.